All right, we come now to the preaching of the Word of God this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn today to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're going to continue in our series on the Ten Commandments as we preach through the book of Deuteronomy together on Sunday mornings. So if you could turn there, we're going to call out to the Lord again, and we're going to ask for help as we open God's Word together this morning. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge now, just like every week, Lord, when we gather in this place, that the most weighty realities in the whole world are, are before us right now, Lord. Your glory and our souls, God. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to feel the gravity of that. And God, we ask that you would meet us here. God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you would draw near to us and that you would meet us here this morning, that you would show us your glory today by the help and by the power of your Holy Spirit, God, that you would make yourself known that you would cause us to see, that you would cause us to hear your word today. And God, our prayer is that you would be glorified, that you would be high and lifted up, that you would be the king of your people, and that our souls would be helped, Lord. God, this is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin our time this morning by reading God's Word together. We'll read our passage in Deuteronomy 5, and we'll start in verse 4, and we'll read through the first commandment together this morning. This is God's Word. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain... Out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not come up into the mountain. And he said, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. This is God's word to Grace Community Church this morning. And that first commandment in verse 7 is what we're going to give attention to as a local church today, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, one of the most offensive claims to non-Christians is the assertion that we human beings don't get to define who God is. Scripture alone gets to define who God is. In other words, God is not a word that we, it's not a fill in the blank definition. We don't just fill in the blank of this is what God means to me, okay? The Christian claim is that God reveals himself in the Bible. And one of the attributes of God in scripture that confronts us and that has troubled many is what we could call this morning the radical God-centeredness of God. The radical self-centeredness of God. All through the Bible we see examples of this attribute. Genesis to Revelation, God demands, commands, requires all people everywhere to worship Him, to praise Him. He commands our total 
an unquestioned and exclusive allegiance. And we see that radical God-centeredness of God in the first commandment in verse 7 where God commands his people, you shall have no other gods besides me, before me. Now, this attribute has been a stumbling block that has caused many to abandon the faith. And, and think about why for just a moment. It doesn't seem, at least you know, from the unbelieving perspective, it doesn't seem that the God of the Bible is very humble. It seems like he's all about himself, that he's all into himself. It seems like the command stuck on repeat all throughout the scripture is praise me, glorify me, worship me, serve me. And God has even been charged as an egomaniac, one excessively concerned with himself. Now, now famously, this was the stumbling block of Oprah Winfrey, of why she walked away from the Christian faith, is that she heard a preacher preaching the attributes of God in Scripture and the heralding that God is a jealous God. And she was thrown into crisis in that moment that her version of God, that God of love, she was unable to square it with that holy attribute of jealousy. And she she rejected the God of the Bible. She walked away from the Christian faith. Uh, Actor Brad Pitt refers to the same reason for walking away of his profession of faith in Jesus Christ because of the egomania of God, the selfishness of God, the requirement that God would require us to worship Him, praise Him, serve Him, and no other. And famously, this was the stumbling block for famous Christian philosopher C.S. Lewis prior to his conversion to Christ, he stumbled over this same stumbling stone, the God-centeredness of God. He writes in his book on the reflection of Psalms as he recounts his unconverted days that all of God's commands, especially throughout the Psalms, worship me, rejoice in me, glorify me, trust me, serve me, that it seemed to him similar to a vain woman demanding to be complimented. Serve me, worship me. God seems selfish to him, petty to him, not humble to him. And so you see, the radical God-centeredness of God is one of the most polarizing truths in the Bible. Okay, We can think of examples this morning of certain foods where we poll the audience and you either love it or hate it. Not very many people in the middle, okay? Well, this, more so than almost anything else, is one of the most polarizing truths. The assertion that God is about himself. God loves himself. God loves his glory. You either hate that truth or you love that truth, okay? And there's really nobody in the middle, And our prayer this morning is that we would all love this truth about God, that God is about himself. God loves his glory. I want you to see it this morning as one of the best things in the universe, that the God of the Bible is about himself. And so that's where we're headed this morning. Now, on our way there, I think we could all agree that not everything is meant to be shared in this world. Okay, so we got some really bad platitudes that float around us all the time that anything exclusive is bad. So think with me this morning, okay? I think we could all agree that some things are not meant to be shared. Two off the top of my head, bite-sized candy bars and prison sentences ought not to be shared. You just shouldn't share those things. Okay. Now on the more serious end, think about marriage this morning. Spouses, covenant spouses, are not meant to be shared. They're just not. They're exclusive. We don't share our spouses with anybody else in this world. 
And this same thing is true with God. There are some things that God has determined that he will not share with any other. Listen to his word in Isaiah 42, verse 8. He says, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And so I want you to understand this morning that that first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, it is a word of narrowness, it is a word of exclusivity, and yes, it is even a word of intolerance. The God of the Bible does not tolerate the worship of any other gods besides him. He will not share his glory with anyone else. Here again, Exodus 34, verse 14, he says this, For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God requires that his people worship him alone in an exclusive relationship. Now let me mention this. The words before me in verse 7 are not to be understood as though we could worship the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant God, uh, as long as we keep him at the top of the list and we still get to have all of our other gods. In other words, the words before me don't mean you can have a list as long as you like, as long as Yahweh's name is at the top of that list. No, he is to be first to the exclusion of all other gods, of every other deity. Okay, First in a list of one, with no other names on the list. Joshua, later in the history of Israel, just after they enter this land and take conquest of the promised land, Joshua actually preaches the first commandment to the nation. He lays that demand in the first commandment upon the nation and he calls them out of their idolatry. Joshua 24, verse 14, Joshua, Joshua preaches, put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. So hear that this morning. It's not move Yahweh's name to the top of the list of all the gods you served beyond the river and in Egypt. He says, put them away. They have no place in the life of the people of God. It's Yahweh alone. It is the Lord alone that we worship and that we serve. God is to be our supreme allegiance. He is to have our unquestioned loyalty. Every other God is to be excluded. Why? Well, one of the ways the Bible answers that question is because God is the only God. He is the one true God. Everybody else is pretenders, and God is the only God, the true and the living God. Here, here again, the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 45, verse 21, there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Now, I want you to think for a minute this morning. We have this assertion of monotheism in the Bible that God is the one and only true God. Even the way he said in Isaiah 45, there's no other God besides me, says the Lord. And yet the Bible refers to all kinds of other false gods. How are we to think about these deities. Well, one of the things I want you to notice is that when the Bible references false gods, it actually asserts that they are no gods at all. So in a sense, they are deities in a sense that the people of God worship them, but the Bible says that false gods are nothings. That's actually what Isaiah says. They're nothings. They're less than nothings. 
Isaiah says it this way in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 8. They are the work of man's hands. False gods are human inventions. False gods are human creations. They are nothings. Listen to how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. He says this. We know that an idol, listen, has no real existence. None. And that there is no God but one, Paul says. And then he says this. Although there are many so-called gods, so-called gods. So I want you to create that category in your mind this morning. That idols are so-called gods. They are nothings. They cannot save. They cannot hear. They cannot speak. They do not live. God is the one true and the living God. And there were many of these false gods in the ancient Near East. And that's the context that this commandment comes uh, in Israel's history. And almost all of these false deities in the ancient Near East and in the Greek pantheon and in the Roman uh, false gods and goddesses, almost all of these false gods were personifications of some power in creation. So think about it. Gods of fertility, gods of agriculture, weather gods, sun gods, moon gods, sky gods, rain gods, sex gods, war gods, on and on and on. Something in creation, some power at work in creation was personified by men and women and projected as a deity and worshipped as a false god. Humans worship these powers in creation as though they were real deities. But Isaiah has already asserted that's just a human invention. You just created your own god. And yet, underneath the personification of these false deities are real powers at work in God's world. And so we have another truth about idols. They're nothings, but they're dangerous nothings. Okay? And we're going to talk about that this morning. And so think about how strange that is. Okay? You don't need to mess with that thing over there. That thing over there is nothing. Why, do, why, do we, why would we be worried about messing with nothing, with being entangled in nothing? That's not all that the Bible says. The Bible says that idols are dangerous nothings. Okay, Why? Because the Bible teaches that demons usurp the worship of these false deities and enslave the worshipers of false gods. They're dangerous nothings. This is why Paul can say two different things. In Romans 1, he can say pagans worship creatures rather than the creator. You just worship creatures is what he says. Creation is what he says. And yet the same apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10 that what pagans offer to idols, they offer to demons and not to gods. And so that's idol worship. It's nothing and it's demonic. The kingdom of darkness usurps this whole realm. They're nothings that will enslave your soul. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. He says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Idols will enslave us. By their very nature, they are enslaving. They are replacement gods that enslave their worshipers. Now, one of the reasons why we feel so insulated and comfortable with this command and others like it in Scripture in our modern Western context is because so many, so many of these ancient gods have disappeared. Think about it. In the ancient Near East, the gods like Baal, Ashtaroth, Molech, 
They're gone. Their worshipers are gone. Their temples are gone. They died. They're not around anymore. Okay? And we see that play out over and over and over again. The Greek gods and goddesses like Zeus and Aphrodite and Artemis, gone. No more. And we falsely draw the conclusion that we don't deal with that anymore. That idolatry stuff is way back there and we don't deal with that anymore. And yet in spite of these ancient gods having disappeared, the Bible teaches us that idolatry is a perennial concern for the human race. Always set before us. It's always a danger to us. Why? Why? Because the Bible teaches that every human being is a worshiper. You need to know that about yourself. You are a worshiper. It's intrinsic in how God made us. We were made to worship as image bearers of God. And not only were we made to worship, you are a worshiper. You will worship something. You, you will serve something. You are currently worshiping something. We do it all the time. It's impossible to escape. Human beings are worshipers. Something will have our total allegiance and our deepest devotion. This is why idolatry is a perennial concern. Not only are we worshipers, we are fallen sinners. Our hearts have fallen into a state of rebellion against God outside of Jesus Christ. The only remedy to this situation is the new birth, the birth from above, the regeneration by the Holy Spirit. Not only are we worshipers, we are idol worshipers. That's who we are. By nature, children of wrath. And so idolatry lives on, even in our modern Western world, because idolatry doesn't depend on ancient names like Baal and Molech. The powers that stood behind these ancient deities are real things that humans need. And they are good things if they're kept in the appropriate order. But as fallen sinners, our, our hearts are bent on turning, listen, good things into ultimate things. And that move right there is the root of every form of idolatry in this world. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. Turn good things into ultimate things. And in this way, modern man still worships and serves the creature rather than the creator, just like all the generations that went before us. And even though we comfort ourselves that our idolatry is no longer practiced by these ancient forms and when these ancient names, the modern West is just as enslaved to false worship as the ancient world. Remember last week when we talked about the spirituality of the law? That we better not approach the Ten Commandments as though it were some merely external thing. Well, we need to peer at the spirituality of the First Commandment. Okay? I'll remember a conversation with my own father of the moment he realized that this commandment demands something more of him than what he ever imagined. And I was talking to him about our sin before God and how we worship idols by our very nature. We crave things in place of God. We put things before God. And I remember him telling me, son, I've never worshipped an idol a day in my life. And he was stuck in this understanding of, I've never went into a shrine. I've never bowed before an icon. I've never called upon the name of a false god. 
And that faulty understanding made him feel more comfortable than he ever should have felt as he stood face to face with that first commandment, the spirituality of the law. God is demanding something in the first commandment that requires heart loyalty to him. Not just about what you say with your mouth or where you physically bow with your knees. That God must be your one and only God. Paul told us that Athens in Acts 17, he said that Athens was a city full of idols. And I want you to understand that modern Americans are more religious than they think they are. Even the ones that don't think they're religious at all. We are a nation full of idols. Listen to this quote from Philip Ryken. He says this, The reason we have trouble identifying our idols is not because we don't have false gods anymore, but because we have so many of them. Do you see that? It's all around us. God substitutes. God replacements. We are idol worshipers outside of Jesus Christ. God says, I won't share my glory with anyone else, with anybody else. And who do we give that glory to? All kind of answers to that question. The Bible teaches, it drives you know, this idolatry, the root of this commandment, deep into the inside, into the heart of man. Listen, these are just some of the ways. Job 31 tells us that gold can be our God. Gold can be our God. Money can be a God to us. Money can be a God to us. And Jesus told us that there's this exclusive thing going on. Matthew 6, 24, you cannot serve God in money. That if we take money as our God, then we can't serve Yahweh as our God. It's an all or nothing deal. There's an exclusive claim going on here. Money can be our God. We can bow down to the idol of money. Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 11 says our strength can be our God. Our sense of power can be our God. Our untouchability So one of the ways that we worship ourselves. Same chapter, Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 16 tells us that our vocation can be our God. It pictures fishermen making sacrifices to their fishnets. Think about, that sounds so ancient, but think about how modern that is of men and women who bow down and worship their vocations for all the things that that job can give them. Job can be your God. Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, Paul refers to those whose belly is their God, or their stomach is their God. They're men and women who are driven through life by the fulfillment of one craving after another craving after another craving. The entire LGBTQ+, and whatever else comes after that down the road, the entire thing is a living out of your belly is your God. Fulfill one craving after another craving after another craving. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is idolatry. Idolatry. Now think about that. That's, that's the bookends of the Ten Commandments. Number one and number ten. And there's something going on here. Not only does the first commandment forbid us from entering into a house of false worship, we cannot even desire anything to put in His place. Our desires can be our God. It can be another God before the Lord our God. Be a false god. At the end of the day, these are just ways of worshiping ourselves instead of worshiping God. You know what the king of all false gods is? Self. Self. The insertion of self in the place of God. The false god of humanism. That man is king. There's another 
place where we can look for our idols, and this is a place where we may not expect it, but the Bible actually tells us that relationships can be idols. Now think about that. Relationships can be false gods that we smuggle into the very presence of God and set them before Him like little figurines that steal His glory. Relationships. I'll mention two examples here. Pastors can be idols. Do you know that? Pastors can be idols in your life. You have an example of this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 3 that this thing was happening in this local church where some were saying, I follow Paul. And others were saying, I follow Apollos. And the supremacy of Jesus Christ was being rivaled in this local church because men were being put in the place of gods. They were little g-gods. Paul responds, is Christ divided? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? How ridiculous this assertion would be that we would elevate men to, to the level of the Lord Jesus Christ. Pastors can be idols. Be warned by that this morning. Also, family can be idols. Remember how we said good things made ultimate things is the very nature of idolatry. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 30, 37. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So listen, listen. Not only does Jesus teach us that you can love your family more than God, undisputably teaches that. Not only does he say that, he tells us that if we do that, we can't have him. Anyone who loves son or daughter more than me, Jesus says, you're not worthy of me. In other words, there's this exclusiveness to that first commandment that if we try to smuggle in other things besides God, we can't have God. We can't have God. And that ought not to be a stumbling block for you because at your, you know, wedding, who says, you know, I, I know we talked about this, you know, in our engagement period, this exclusive thing, but I would really like to smuggle other partners into this relationship. Who at the altar says, yeah, go, go ahead, go for it. There's an exclusiveness to this relationship. No other gods besides me, God says. He who loves father and mother more than me, Jesus says, he is not worthy of me. And one of the things that we have to recover about idolatry is it's no light thing. You know, like sometimes we have a weird sense of comfort and, and and, and we realize we're all sinners. We're all idol worshipers. And we draw this weird sense of comfort like it's no, it's no big deal. We're all guilty. But our idols are not insignificant things that ought to make us say, oops, probably shouldn't have done that. But they're offensive to God that should cause us to cry out, woe is me. I have offended my king. And we see this in verse 7 with the use again of the words before me. No other gods before me. Those words are a reminder that our false gods are in God's presence. They are before him. They are before his face. There's nothing hidden about them. They're in the face of our God. In other words, our idols 
provoke our God to jealousy. And he's already told us that. I'm a jealous God. They're before him. Picture an adulterous husband bringing a mistress before his covenant wife. It's a provocation. It's right in the face. That's where our idols are. In fact, there is no area of our lives that is not before the face of our God. There might be no one else in this entire world that knows about your idols, but they are in God's face. They are before the face of your God. Now think about that. If all idolatry is before him, if all false gods are before him, and God is everywhere, where is idolatry excluded? Everywhere in the created world. Abraham Kuyper was right when he said these words. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. That belongs to me, Jesus says. Every corner of our life, all that we are. And so as we understand the first commandment rightly, we understand that we are being called to to resist the spirit of the age. And what I mean by that is all the forces that are all around us, the world pressing us into its mold, all the streams of this world converging in the same direction, going after false gods, false gods, we have to resist it. We have to stand against it and worship God alone. Now, if you are not saved, resisting the spirit of the age means that you have to come to Jesus Christ. In other words, to be unsaved, and you've got to see this about yourself, to be unsaved is to be an idol worshiper who is refusing to follow the Lord Jesus. You need to come to Jesus Christ. You need to come to Christ. You need to put your trust in Jesus to save you from your sins. And when you trust in him, listen, you trust in him, Jesus is Lord. That's saving faith. The object of saving faith is Christ the Lord. Not Christ the candy man in the sky, Christ the Lord. In other words, to trust in Jesus is to enter into a master-servant relationship with Jesus Christ. Jesus, I believe that you are Lord. You are my King. I am your servant. I've wasted my entire life, but Lord, I thank you for the gospel. I am your servant. I want to serve you all of my days. A saving faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord, Lord of all. If you are saved, this means regular repentance. Regular repentance. I hope you know this, that repenting is not something that we did this one time prior to conversion. And we never have to repent and believe again. The entire Christian life is repenting and believing the gospel, repenting of our sins, believing the gospel, walking in the way of righteousness. Christian, when is the last time that you've repented? Where you saw something in your life that ought not to be there and you turned away from it and renewed those covenant vows to God. Lord, I want to have no other gods before you. I want to turn away from these false idols. And serve you alone. Christians need this reminder. Christians need this reminder. 1 John chapter 5 verse 21 was written to Christians. When he pens these words. He says little children keep yourselves from idols. 
Be convinced of that. Followers of Jesus, we do not live in a neutral world. We live in a dangerous world where everything, almost everything we can imagine is trying to steal our affections, grab our devotion. We ought to have this posture, Lord, help me to keep myself from idols. The Bible gives us a tragic example of a man who started out well, And then his heart was dragged away to worship and serve false gods. His name was Solomon. He was one of the wisest kings in Israel's history. And God had made provision in his word that the kings of Israel would be protected from idolatry. And I want to mention just two verses here. In Deuteronomy 17, what is referred to as the law of the king, the instructions specifically for the king. In verses 16 and 17, God prohibited the kings of Israel from accumulating three things. Number one, horses. Number two, wives. And number three, gold. Now think about that for just a moment. Think about how gracious God was. In those words. The accumulation of horses would have been an effort to bolter the military might of the nation. And feed the false god of power. Number two, the accumulation of wives would have been an effort to satisfy the hedonistic sexual desires of the king. And feed the false god of sex. And number three, the accumulation of gold would have been an effort to secure whatever the king wanted and feed the false god of money. And as Israel's history unfolds, we find out that Solomon broke all three provisions. Multiplied horses, multiplied wives, multiplied excessive gold. And these things correspond to what you could call the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity, God, sex, and power. In other words, the same things that cause so many to fall away from loyalty to God in our modern world were the same things that drug the heart of the wisest king of Israel away from Yahweh. I want you to turn with me and read the account of, a, of Solomon's idolatry in 1 Kings 11. God's word says this. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh. Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them. Neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses, 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of, his, of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Now we could look at Solomon's life. Remember, this was a man who was given wisdom from God to rule this nation. He was given wisdom from God. And we could ask that question of how could one who was so wise be so foolish? And we could be warned by this this morning. That one of the ways we could answer that question is by ignoring 
these temptations to idolatry, the accumulation of gold, the God of money, the accumulation of wives, the God of sex, the accumulation of, of, of horses, the God of power, the God of success in this world. These things drug his heart away. And later in his life, the book of Ecclesiastes shows us that idolatry left Solomon in despair. It wasn't a happy end to his idolatry. It wasn't like, hey, I made these decisions and my heart turned away from Yahweh, the one true God, and things have been going great for me ever since. In fact, in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, it's like he lists out all of his accomplishments, all the ways that he had eaten at the table of the world, all the trappings of this world that he enjoyed. And he said he was miserable. He was in despair. He cries out, vanity of vanities, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Idolatry left him empty, despairing, unsatisfied. Why? Because idols are nothing. They cannot save. They cannot satisfy the human heart. We were made for the one true God, to worship him alone. Now, this is a good place to remind us this morning of the goodness of the first commandment. This is a good commandment, okay? Those who hate God-centeredness, the God-centeredness of God, they imagine that the first commandment is a way that this tyrant deity just uses his subjects for his own, you know, personal ends, okay? And I want us to consider that this morning, this question. Is God using us in the first commandment? Or is God loving us in the first commandment? And the Bible tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 10, that all of God's commandments are for our good. Every single commandment of God is good for us. Every single one. And this means that the first commandment is good for us. This is good for us. And it also means that God is loving us in the first commandment. Why? Because God is giving us what is good for us in the first commandment. You say, what do you mean? Exclusive, radical, God-centeredness is good for you. It's good for you. Because, listen, it's the only thing that will truly satisfy you. It's what you were made for. You were made to live before the face of God, to worship the Lord alone. And so what God is actually doing in the first commandment, he is commanding your eternal happiness. He's commanding it. And not only that, he's prohibiting in the first commandment anything that would disrupt your person, your eternal happiness in the presence of God. God is loving us in the first commandment. Now, there's a great paradox here that what God is calling for is total allegiance. Everything that we have, all that we are. But the paradox is this, that as we commit our, soul, our whole selves to God, God, I am yours through and through, all my heart, all my soul, all my strength, I'm yours. As we commit our whole selves to God, we don't go back to Egypt into slavery. We don't go back to Egypt into slavery. In fact, we find our greatest sense of, of freedom and fulfillment and eternal joy. Why? Because God made us to live for him. This is what we were made for. You were made to trust God. You weren't made to trust in yourself. You were made with a Godward gaze as part of being made in the image of God, to look to Him. You were made to worship God. You were made to love God, fear God, serve God. You were made to meditate on the Lord. You're made to remember God. You're made to fear God. You're made to obey God. You are made to serve God. We are made 
for God. And like we said at the very beginning, that truth is one of the most polarizing truths in the whole universe. That God made you for Him. You either like it, you either love it, or you hate it. You either love it or you hate it. Now the last thing I want us to consider together as it relates to the first commandment is I want us to consider this morning what does the coming of Jesus Christ mean in regards to the first commandment? You shall have no other gods besides me. One of the things I want you to see is we could say that, the, that after the coming of Jesus, the, the implications of the first commandment get more specific. You say, what do you mean? Commandments changing? No, commandments aren't changing. I mean, after the coming of Jesus, God gave himself a new name, a new and final name, Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus. God has come to us in the person of Jesus. John 1 says this, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God has appeared to us in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this history shaping reality of the coming of Jesus Christ, it is no longer possible to keep the first commandment without worshiping Jesus as God. In other words, after the coming of Christ, the first commandment requires that if we're going to have no other gods before God, then we can have no other God before Jesus Christ. The New Testament is clear on this, that Jesus is an object of Christian worship. John chapter 5, verse 23, tells us that we should honor the Son, listen, just as we honor the Father. And that if we withhold honor to the Son, then we withhold honor to the Father. We must worship Jesus Christ. Philippians 2 tells us that every knee will bow to the Son of God. We will worship Him. Whether in this life by faith or in the next at the judgment seat of Christ, every knee will bow to Jesus. And knowing that Jesus is this high and exalted one, the one given the name above every name, it should provoke us to three things as responses to the first commandment. Three things this morning. Number one, repentance. Repentance. Think about it. If Jesus has been given the name that is above every name, if Jesus is the exalted Son of God who sits at the right hand of God, then what does that mean? It means He's worthy of everything that we have. He's worthy of our affection, our obedience, our worship. Jesus is worthy of everything that we have and all that we are. And one of the things that ought to happen is we ought to realize, every single one of us, that we have not given Jesus Christ the glory that He deserves. The glory that He deserves. Uh, Romans chapter 3 verse 23 defines sin as falling short of glory. We have done that millions of times over as it relates to Jesus Christ. We have fallen short of His glory. We have failed to glorify Him. All the things that we pursue with more devotion than we pursue Jesus, we should call them exactly what they are. They're false gods. They're little deities. We should name them. We should hate them. And the Bible says that we should turn away from them. We should repent. We should recognize the ways that we have substituted the glory of Jesus Christ. And we should turn away. And we should come to Jesus. Number one, we should repent 
of idolatry. Number two, we should trust in Jesus. Think about it. If Jesus is the object of worship, if he is to be honored with the same honor that the Father is to be honored, if he is God in human flesh, if he is the fullness of deity bodily, and he is, then that means that there is a God-man with perfect righteousness in the presence of God. Right now. With a blameless record in the presence of God. Think about that specifically as it relates to the first commandment. Jesus never had any other gods before God. Think of all the ways that this is described in the New Testament. Jesus says... In John 8, he says, I always do what pleases the Father. Always. Not a millisecond in his life of rebellion against God, of lack of total devotion to God. In John 4, he says, my food is to do the will of my Father. It's like nourishment to me. It's like it's like taking down meat and drink. It's just to obey my Father who is in heaven. Jesus never breached the first commandment. He never placed anything above his Father. The book of Acts tells us that he set the Lord always before him. Or he saw the Lord always before him. Constant communion with his Father. Unbroken communion with his Father. And so we have this man, this God-man of perfect righteousness in the presence of of God. Why should we trust him? Because that's who acted to save us from our sins. Do you understand, Christian, this morning? The object of worship acted to save you. The one whom angels worship acted to save you from your sins. The one for whom all of creation Everything that has been made was made for Him. That's who acted to save you. And so what does Jesus do? He takes that perfect righteousness, that blameless record of keeping that first commandment, and He offers it up as a sacrifice to God to cover our sins. Romans 3 calls it a propitiation. That turns the anger of God away. The wrath of God away. Jesus is the the spotless lamb that offers up that perfect righteousness on our behalf to cover our sins for all the ways and all the times that we broke the first commandment, that we had other gods before the Lord. And the Bible says that Jesus did this while you were still in the midst of your idolatry. He says, while we were still sinners and enemies, Romans 5, Christ died for us to cover all of our sin. And so what should we do? That's who we should trust. Is the righteous man in the presence of God that has acted to save me from my sin. I will have no other besides him. That's who I'm trusting in. Number three, we should worship Jesus Christ. If he has been given the name that is above every name, then it is impossible for you to run after Jesus with too much devotion. Think about that. Which angel in the presence of God is heralding the glory of Christ and somebody's saying, whoa, that's too much. He's worthy of it all. He's worthy of everything that we have. And so, Christian, if you have a spark of love for Jesus Christ, then I want to encourage you this morning to fan it into a flame with the help of the Spirit of God. Take that little spark and fan it into a flame. And Christian, if you have a flame of love this morning and you love Jesus Christ, then let it burn your whole life for the glory of Christ. Hotter and hotter, bigger and bigger. More love to Jesus Christ. Why? Because He's worthy. He's worthy. And there's none other besides Him. And it's impossible to declare His glory. Let's pray together.
this morning. Let's ask for God's help. Father, we come now, and Lord, we ask for help today. God, we thank you for going before us, just as you went before Israel in that prologue, and you brought them out of Egypt. Lord, you have gone before us in the gospel. And we come as a church, Lord, and we ask to be purified and set apart and sanctified. And so, Lord, we pray that you would use your word today in your church to secure undivided allegiance to you. Lord, stir it up in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.